there two goes to see thank you so much for coming so if you haven't heard this show before my name is matt gorley this is the show where i talk to people who were present in the great films or scenes of cinema history i could not be more excited to be able to do this than the joko cruise i want to say thank you so much to jonathan colton and paul and storm and all the people who have put this together please give them a round of applause thank you I'm also very, very excited to be doing this. Those, uh, those of you just listening to this later on, we are in the Olive or Twist Lounge here on the Freedom of the Seas boat, and it's rumbling. It sort of feels like a, we're on a Magic Fingers bed a little bit as it shakes. <laughs> the Caribbean Sea is just out the window. That is still, the, we're back in the Caribbean, right? I learned that this is the second saltiest sea on the face of the planet. Did you know that? We could quit right here and we've learned something. <laughs> Um, uh, so, today's film we're going to talk about first is The Big Lebowski. And, uh, I, this film I love so much. It's been inducted into the Library of Congress for a great American film. It's spanned and sprouted its own religion called Dudism. Have you guys heard of this? This is apparently true. It also contains my favorite ever sanitization of a vulgar phrase when it went to TV release. So pardon my French. If, uh, if anybody is offended by rough language, just, just hold your ears shut for a second. So there's a scene in the film where um, John Goodman playing Walter Socek smashes a car over and over with a crowbar. And he repeats endlessly, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. Donnie, this is what happens when you... Everybody say it with me. This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass, Donnie. So on television, it got changed to, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps, Donnie. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. And I, I have to believe that's the Coen brothers going, all right, if you're going to censor us, we're going to give you the, the strangest thing you've ever heard. Um, but we're going to get started. My first guest today uh, is an incredible singer-songwriter. She's a guitarist, a bass player. She's a record label impresario, an amateur boxer, and an actor in the film The Big Lebowski. So her credit in this film is, a, is officially, according to IMDb, nihilist woman, comma, Franz's girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, but if you see it, you know there's much more to it than that. She's the source of the severed toe that factors heavily in the ransom scheme throughout this movie. And um, she's just in one scene, and it's actually just one take, but I feel like there's so much to talk about in this scene. You've got pancakes, nihilism, uh, a cowboy boot that's been essentially turned into a sandal, and flee from the red-hot chili peppers. So there's <laughs> lots to talk about. Please, please welcome Amy Mann. Hello. Hi, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I'm just going to take down this computer alert that says I have to put flea control on my cat. 
Topical. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your diner scene here. Now, I know this character, I'm going to have you answer some questions for your character because you're the ultimate authority on this, okay? Am I? You are. <laughs> Who else would I, I go like to? There's all sorts of conventions and stuff that I... probably know a lot more than me. I've only seen the movie once. Really? Yeah. Was this back when it came out? Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it's, it hasn't been recently. Never thought to revisit it. It just hasn't happened. Uh, I, uh, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, right, you've done it. You've conquered yeah, it. You don't I need to it. be there. All right. Well, still, I'm still going to go to you for this authority. Now, in this scene, you you don't seem very happy as a character in the scene. Is this because you've just had your toe cut off, or because you are a nihilist and it doesn't matter anyway? You're not going to be happy about anything. Well, I feel like that was kind of my brief. Like my my interpretation of a nihilist was just like no feeling, which uh, was great because that's about my acting ability is uh, just flat. Really? Yeah. I don't know. You've got a lot going on here. How did you end up in this film in the first place? I was friends with um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's girlfriend at the time was one of the casting directors uh-huh. and she said to me would you be have any interest in auditioning for this because somebody had suggested my name and I was in this uh, place where I was wildly disillusioned with a music business so I was like I will fucking do anything that's not music right now Really? and so even though I, I didn't I mean I didn't really feel like I could act or anything I, I like I kind of had this uh, just say just try stuff you know, why not? Say just, yes just, to everything. Yeah, just try it. Like, I'm what's... in a say no to everything mode right yeah. now. Well, so. <laughs> sometimes, the, sometimes it's a good mode to be in also. Uh, you end up saying yes to a lot of dumb stuff that you shouldn't have. <laughs> but uh, I... You know, I mean, an audition is is a creepy business, Isn't and it? uh, it's very demoralizing. Uh, but I just, you know, so that's what I was afraid of, but I just thought, like, just do it. So and what also, was the... it was in a different language. That's right. So yeah, it's I have some questions of, about know, that, too. How, did you have any familiarity with you're speaking German, correct? I I I uh I took German in high school so a little I. bit. Yeah. So I knew, I knew a little bit and uh and you know, there was the you know, the lines written out and I just tried to uh more or less be able to read them on the page. I and think... I and I really think I did it in such a flat manner that uh Ethan Joel were like, Yeah, that's it. It's people <laughs> apply their own meaning to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you really have a lot of leeway with playing a nihilist. I mean you can do nothing and say that's all on purpose. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And I and it's for some reason uh, I got away with it. It's sounding like a good lifestyle choice for <laughs> for me. Yeah, just yeah. no no effort really, no effort required. Speaking of German, the best I could do to figure out what you say in that scene is "Für mich habe keine Pfannkuchen." Something about "I'll have little pancakes." Do like you know lingonberry what? pancakes? Oh, you want yeah. lingonberry pancakes because yeah. then that's what he orders for Fun, you. Fun, yeah. But I sort of took from your response to him saying that like he ordered you the wrong thing out of spite or something. <laughs> I, I don't remember this exactly, but um, my my recollection of that scene was that um, uh, so it was Peter Stormare, yeah. who's Swedish, right? Right. And Flea, who is not. He's he's <laughs> otherworldly. Yeah. So um, and and uh, and the other guy was had never been in a movie before. Torsten Vogus. Yeah, Torsten. So Torsten had never <laughs> been in a movie before either, and the two of us were like. Um, I'm a little, like, in case we're supposed to do or say anything more, maybe we should just prepare some dialogue. Wait, and you didn't even have 
scripted dialogue? You I just... think there was like a, a line, uh-huh. but um, but it was just it was so short that you know it was like I'll I'll have the lingonberry pancakes and he says one other thing, so uh, so he and I got together and sort of worked at a dialogue and and the the um, I think we were talking about like do you have the do you have the room key like no I gave it to you like no I don't have it so we were kind of having an argument about the key yeah and just to have something to say and uh, and then we. When we got to to the scene, indeed, uh, uh, Ethan and Joel were like, "Okay, you guys are just talking in German," and then we'll like, so we're like, "Oh my god, I'm so fucking glad I prepared something." How could they expect that? Of you? I That's... don't know, but they did. They did, and and Flea's. Um, so Peter Stormare was d- doesn't speak German. And Flea was just pretending to speak German. I think that's very clear. So they, <laughs> so they told him, like, you're just uh, like uh, nodded out and you're just drugged out. And so, yeah. Really? So they had to kind of put him to sleep because that's he was... That's the impression I got. Yeah. I, that he was, I, that, he yeah. was that his this German gibberish was a little too gibberish. Because he's going 110% in that film the entire time. Even yeah. when he gets hit by the bowling ball, I think, in the, like, the parking lot fight... His agony screams are so intense that it's almost off-putting, and I'm wondering if his German was the same way. Yeah, yeah. He was, my my memory of him is that he was super wound up all the time. That makes yeah. that aligns with what I have in my head. Basically, yep. yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, it's as is his bass playing, so is his acting. <laughs> He doesn't even have the notes between the notes because the notes between the notes are playing. <laughs> We're at sea. All right. So, um, you guys, so you had this German ready to go, luckily. Yeah. That that makes me feel so nervous that a director could just come up to you and go, all right, do this whole scene yeah, in German. Yeah, you guys are just talking. Yeah. Did they you think that you were, you were cast because you were German and could handle it? No, uh, I don't know. I guess they were just, uh, hope, you know, maybe they think actors uh, can just magically pull stuff out. <laughs> Every language. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, just stretch that. You know that one line you learn, just stretch it, repeat it. <laughs> yeah, so I was so glad. Yeah, be, you know, because he, the Torsten and I were, we were super nervous about it. Yeah. You know, we were like, uh, we don't really know what we're doing. And so this was just because of an audition process. Did you just have one audition meeting, or did you go through a series of callbacks? No, I just, I just did the, I did the one thing, and I just read the line, and they were like, "Yeah, that's it." Yeah. You had it. Yep. Wow, that sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that that will never happen again to anyone in the history of audition. Have you auditioned for much since then? I auditioned for a couple of things. I mean, just to see, you know, once again to say yes, like, I don't think I can act, really. I've done a little bit of acting, like, just playing myself is probably not too awful, because <laughs> I sort of know what that's like. Yeah. Uh, I I did an audition for I was asked to read for that movie Twenty One Grams. Yeah, yeah. And it was is that Sean Penn. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the weight of a human soul, right? Yeah, yeah. the weight of a human soul. <laughs> Twenty One Grams. Um, and and I think it was supposed to be Naomi Watts' sister. Uh huh. And it was uh, it was just like a difficult scene where, you know. I was supposed to get upset, and the, you know, I, I like I don't, you know, it was real acting, and uh, and so I met with the casting director, and they had this the little camera pointed at me, and I read the scene, and she goes, "Yeah, this is a hard scene." <laughs> <laughs> Wait, she said that before or after? No, after. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah this, this is a hard one. Oh my god! It was fucking terrible. I mean, I was terrible. I was terrible oh. because acting is hard. Yeah. Unless you're the, one of those magical weird people 
who can just uh, set aside their entire personality and adopt a whole new one. I don't know how people do it. I it really takes don't. a level of being a sociopath. You'll be able to disconnect from Paula yourself. Paula Tompkins. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I do, I have, I know people who are great actors and some of them I think are crazy and, <laughs> and, some, and some aren't. And I, I think, I think not, to be a great actor and not be crazy, I, that, that's the real feat. Yeah. Do you find any connection between acting and so performing on stage, singing and songwriting, do you feel that there's any acting that goes into that or are you trying to strip away the acting as much as possible? Well, it's not acting in that I'm not sort of pretending to feel a thing. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think feeling and portraying the emotion of the song is easy because the music just immediately takes you, it just immediately makes you feel a thing. Mm-hmm. So you're not pretending to feel it, you're feeling it. Yeah, you should be able to bring in some inspirational music for auditions to play behind. Yeah, I think people do that, right? They listen they? to sad songs oh, yeah. before scenes. But I mean like a boombox and press play and go, okay, <laughs> hi, my name is so-and-so. I'll yeah. be reading for the part. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just Enya playing behind you. <laughs> um, do you remember what, uh, like, what the Coen brothers had you do? Was it a pretty quick... Because it's only one shot in the film. Yeah. Did you shoot more than one angle or one take, or and that's just they used a master shot, or? Do you I think that I think it was just one. I think it was a couple, couple three takes. And my memory is that we were sit, just sitting in the booth and the cameras panning, yeah. panning back, and that's or all panning, they panning did. in probably. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, and that's why we had to. Just be chatting in German because it, it was kind of a longish pan. Yeah, and how was it working with them? They seem like they're pretty cool. They're characters. awesome. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 super chilled out. Their their vibe is really is really nice, and uh, they're not you know they're not yelly or tense or anything. But I mean, I you know I really was there like two hours. Really, it was yeah. that easy. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty fast. It's a very it memorable scene. I mean, I remember seeing it in the film when that's Amy Mann right there, and and uh, it always stuck with me as a scene from that film. It's such a memorable. Oh, I forgot to mention too. Um, my fiance and cabin mate Amanda noticed that she has a sweater very similar to the dude's sweater, so I should really put this on. Should I just describe this podcast style? Yeah. He's putting, uh, no, the second arm is in the sweater. The sweater is a heavy cable knit sweater. Sort of dude-like with a rolled collar. You <sighs> do look very, very cozy and laid back. I feel that way. It's hard not to in a roll neck sweater because it just kind of like comforts you where it counts. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you order yourself a white Russian? Oh, can I get a white Russian? Clank, clank, ice. <laughs> thank you. I know. Would you like one? No, thank you. Okay. All right. Or a Caucasian, depending on, <laughs> depending on what camp you fall in. So did they, uh, the Coen brothers, did they tag team direct at all? Because they take different credits on the film, director and producer, but... I don't remember. Did you remember which was which? I do not. <laughs> Thank you for asking me in a public way. <laughs> it's their own fault. They look too much alike. Um, how about your wardrobe choices? Because you, oh you, boy, was that? Did you have any say in uh, that? Of course not. No, <laughs> no. Um, so they had uh, they had a very eighties uh, zebra stripey tank top. Yeah, that was uh, not flattering. And then uh, and then the makeup person was like, oh, you know what we should do? Put a bunch of moles on your face. 
Yeah. Well, I didn't notice that, really. But, well, take a look. Oh, my God. Like, that oh, is worth you. going back and yeah. revisiting it alone. Yeah. How many moles would you say they put on your uh, face? It's, uh, three or four moles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple, couple three moles. What, was there any explanation as to why this is something I, they want? My suspicion is because I already have a mole on my face. They were yeah. like, oh, yeah, let's augment that. Let's let's ah. t- let's take that and amplify it. Uh, um, I want. Well, I do want to know though if if you were willingly giving that toe for the cause of the group, or did they coax you out of it? Do you, was that ever discussed in any form? That was not discussed at all. If yeah. you had to answer that right now, my consideration was one thousand uh, percent speaking German in a scene when, when ordered <laughs> to. Yeah, See, that's all that you was, cared. That about. was all I was worried about. Okay, but. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna Tim Russert you on this. Oh my God! Thank you. That looks really good. You sure you don't want one? I, you know, I have to sing later, so a big glass of milk, I think, is probably the wrong. <laughs> the wrong of alcoholic move. milk. Oh my God! Here I go. Thank you. Thank you. You want to stir it up a little? Thank you. Thank you. Ah, oh, that's really good. Yeah, it's a milkshake. For yeah, it's an adult milkshake. It's like adult yoo-hoo. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> How much do you love life? <laughs> <laughs> Did you give the toe away willingly, or was it for? Uh, was were you coaxed out of that? I feel like toe? it's a coercion. There's a lot of coercion involved. So, yeah, the the vibe that I got with the with the group and the players and Peter Stormare was that with uh, against my character, it was like you're just doing this. Yeah, <laughs> okay. like we're in too deep. Come on, <laughs> God, brutal. Okay, I'm going to confess to you that the real reason that I wanted to talk to you today was because I want to talk about how you sang and were in the video for Time Stand Still on the Rush album, Hold Your Fire. Yeah. I, the, Ru- the Rush fans, the Rush fans go deep. I'm even, I'm just going to put this away because uh-huh. I, at one time, was a very deep Rush fan. And I, I love this song. How did this happen? Tell me everything. Are they, they as nice as they seem? They are really nice. They're Canadian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> If, if you ever get a chance to see the documentary on Rush, which is, I think, streaming in most places, it's the, it's the rock documentary where, I mean, other than personal tragedies, but nothing of their own volition. Like, they, these, they're so nice and sweet and have stayed together for, what, like 30 years or something Yeah, they've like been that? together forever. Yeah. 40? 40 years? Is, oh, my God. What are the stones at at this point? No one knows. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> I so, love how no one in this room is the Stones. I know. Like, I'm, I'm not really either. All right. So how did this happen, and what was the experience like? Uh, well, you know, I just got a call, and I don't, I don't really know why or, or how or what, what led them to me. They must have been fans of Till Tuesday. Right? I do not know that that is true. What? Really? I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think, you know, maybe somebody just heard me on the radio and was like, yeah, yeah. I think they were looking for uh, a, a female voice to sing that, uh-huh. that uh, part. And they and probably somebody heard me on the radio because that's kind of when you know had had stuff yeah. playing, uh, and and I flew up to Toronto, and they were very very nice and um, and and again then we did the the video in in New York. Uh, they're also well two thirds of them are very funny. Guess which guess which two thirds? Alex and Getty. Yeah. 
Neil's a little serious, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's super serious. <laughs> uh, yeah, they they were they were really and they were big baseball fans. So we talked about because I was going for some reason going through some baseball like period where that's like how I went through my rush period yeah baseball yeah there's just a time in your life when that's appropriate yeah yeah Yeah. well I think because I was living in Boston the Red Sox were were gonna play in the World Series finally and Uh. and uh went to see some games and so there was like Red Sox fever (laughs) and then uh after that it was like oh I'm done done with baseball but so we talked about baseball a lot because they were they were really into baseball and and uh I think during a break during the video we went Went out in the parking lot, threw the old ball around. Really? I, like brought my catcher, my ba- my baseball mitt. I like I, what a nut! You <laughs> flew with your baseball yeah. mitt. Yeah, and I had him sign it. I had Getty sign. Oh, Getty Liz. Do you still have it? I do. Is it in a shadow box or anything like a curio no. cabinet? No. W- will you put it in one? It's, I don't think it's that. Uh... Please. <laughs> Can I? Yeah, I. I... I think I was thinking I was going to get different people to sign it, but I didn't really want anybody else to sign it. Like, I had uh, David Letterman sign it, and I had Getty Lee sign it, and that's it. Those are my two signatures. You don't know what that mitt would mean to me, but those two people are in there. Well, would you like to name a price? I would like you to name a price. <laughs> we'll discuss later. Can we pool our money right now and do a little, like, in-room Kickstarter thing? Um, so in this video... It's the early days of video effects, and I'm assuming you guys just shot this all on blue screen or green screen. I, I, yeah, must have. You're operating a video camera. Like a giant <laughs> TV camera, yeah. Like what, a camera that would be on the Letterman show. Yeah. One that wheels around and everything. Yeah. Was there any discussion as to what the concept was going on? I don't know. I don't know. They were, like, I was trying to, I was trying to film them, and they're, you know, it's, utilizing their effects, their little faces were flying around the room, and I was trying to corral them or something like i think that's that's all i remember of whatever concept it was oh god yeah but that was like big effects like oh yeah. my god they're they're flying around yeah because this is when they had moved into their synthesizer phase too yeah. and so they'd gone from like pure classic prog rock to techno a little bleep bloop yeah yeah a lot of bleep a bloop. touch of bleep bloop but the video effects reflect that yeah you know they've really it's a special time in the history of mankind <laughs> um Okay, so I know you have to run pretty soon, but I, I just want to talk a little bit about Magnolia, and then we're going to bring up our wonderful second guest. So you created the soundtrack for Magnolia, but a lot of the film was based on the songs that you had already kind of been developing, right? Yeah, it was very concurrent. Um, my my husband, Michael Penn, was really good friends with Paul F. Tompkins, and, or Paul F. Tompkins, Paul Thomas Anderson, sorry. I get you guys confused. They have similar yeah. names, that's yeah. understand. Uh and uh, because he had he had scored um, uh, Hard Eight, and and so we were you know there was a we were just all sort of hanging out together, and I was working on a new record, writing songs for a new record, and gave him a tape of the songs, and he came by the studio and was sort of hanging out. But so he had a a tape of songs I was working on, and and then was writing the the screenplay to Magnolia while listening to to some of the songs, and and, and, and asking me you know telling me like you know this is what's what I'm writing about, will you write me more songs? And so it was a true give and take. Thing. Yeah, well, we were, I think we were really writing about this. You know, we like to write about kind of similar stuff. Yeah, and one of the Fucked lines, people. <laughs> that movie's full of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the lines from your songs actually makes it into the movie, right? Yeah, the one that um, 
Yeah, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing yeah. each other again? Yeah. And um, so we're going to use this as a moment to segue into saying goodbye to you and talking to Paul F. Tompkins about Magnolia. So let's have a huge round of applause for Amy. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. Okay, this guy, actor-comedian, for my money, the actor-comedian of our time. His podcast, yes. Uh, you can't, you're not up here yet. You don't get the right to refuse that. Uh, his podcast, Spontaneous Nation, can be heard on the Earwolf Network. It can be seen live every month at Largo at the Coronet Theater. His friendship can be seen in our conversation as we're about to begin his late-night talk show, No You Shut Up, is on the Fusion Network. Let's hear it for Paul F. Tompkins, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Hello. Hello to all. Hi, Paul. To one and all. Would you like a white Russian? Hell no. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I'm only three sips in, and it's like I'm in. This, I'm this in. I don't know. I, I know Matt. We've known each other for quite some time. Yeah. This is probably a big mistake for you. It is. Especially when you factor in the rolling motion of the sea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't handle motion well as it is. And then I'm drinking an alcohol drink, which makes you drunk. And which you a, also don't handle well. Nope. And a dairy product that makes me sick. <laughs> so, Paul... Your time on Magnolia, you've spoken about it before in your stand-up, right? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I find this... I, I first want to get a clear lay of the land, like literally the geography, because your day shooting on this, mm -hmm. you're on set, but you're also on phone, right? Yes, I in Magnolia, I played... What was my character's name? My character's name was Chad, and I was <laughs> the guy on the phone uh, at the uh, uh, for Tom Cruise's weird... Uh, misogynist business. Yes. Um, and I was uh, the guy at the call center. So you would call... I can't remember the name of the organization. Oh, it's... Um, it's uh, hold on. Seduce and Destroy. Seduce and Destroy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was an operator at Seduce and Destroy. So uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is taking care of um, uh, the, the late Jason Robards, uh, who was Tom Cruise's character's estranged father... He's dying of cancer, and so Philip Seymour Hoffman is his nurse, and he's trying desperately to reconnect them with each other. And so he doesn't know what else to do. So he calls this call center, and he ends up talking to me. And uh, it's, this, it's a very intense scene because Jason Robards uh, is um, like thrashing about in this bed. He's in the, the throes of, of uh, horrible pain, and there's d these yappy dogs running around, and... Philip Seymour Hoffman is just trying desperately to reach Tom Cruise. And so we have this very intense conversation while all this stuff is going on. Uh huh. And so at some point you were to be on camera though, right? Yeah, they filmed me. I, I spent um, three days on set altogether. Ah. I was uh, in the one set because there was, there was – originally it was a three-way conversation. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman, me, and Mary Lynn Wright's Cub who's playing my supervisor. Okay. So we are all on the phone with each other. And uh, we're all in separate rooms. So the first day um, was me uh, in the kitchen of this apartment, and Mary Lynn was in another room, um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman was uh, 
was somewhere else on set in another room. Are you in the kitchen of the apartment because just to be the voice or that was the like physical location your character was supposed no. to be? No, no, no. I was not yet. This is not before I'm on camera. Okay. I'm not seen at all. all so right. so they, I, they just had me in another room so I could literally be on the phone. We were doing it all live, okay. all the conversations Which live. Which is probably rare for a phone conversation. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, you would, yeah. Normally you would just – you just fill that in later. You know, you'd have the actor uh, – you know, your, your hero actor would be, uh, y- you know, working with uh, – you know, just somebody reading the lines, you know, but it, it depends on the project. And, and obviously this was, you know, a, a serious movie and Paul Thomas Anderson, it was very important to him that, that everyone be acting together up to a point. So, <laughs> so first day, you know, I'm in this kitchen, Mary Lynn is being filmed and Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in another room. And, uh, uh, it was really scary. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was the second day. The very first day was the scariest day. That's the day that they're filming Philip Seymour Hoffman doing this, like, acting the shit out of this scene, right? And so we're in this big mansion in the middle of nowhere in, in, outside of Los Angeles County. And uh, so I'm in one room. Mary Lynn's in another room. Philip Seymour Hoffman is on the set. And um, I am just as I documented in my stand-up on a, an album called Laboring Under Delusions, I'm, like, freaking out. I'm freaking out that I'm You should absolutely track this down because the story that you tell of this process is fantastic. It's just – I'd never been involved in anything this big before and I was so nervous all the time. You describe it as the script was like everyone in the phone book started talking to each other. Yes. At the table read, I was not given a script in advance and they had me – before they knew what I was going to play, they had me play a lot of fill-in parts. So there was like – I was asked to play a dozen – you know, one or two line roles for the table read. And the table read is all the cast of the movie. And um, I got the script so, like, they were supposed to give it to me the day before and they never did. And so I am, like, frantically trying to make sure I'm consulting this list and then looking back to make sure that I am saying all the things that I'm supposed to say, playing all these different roles. And, of course, I missed some lines. So there would be, like, a silence, and then I would realize, oh, no, it's me. I am grinding this to a halt. Oh, God, and this so, makes me so tense. Oh, was, I can still feel it now. And like you're when seated I talk about next it, to Tom Cruise, literally yes. next to Tom Cruise. There was one seat left, and Tom Cruise was the last person to arrive, and he <laughs> sat right next to me. And it was a very weird experience. And so by the time I get to the set, well, now I've already blown it at the table read. And so I'm just freaked out the whole time. The only thing that was kind of calming was Mary Lynn, who was a friend of mine. We'd known each other for years at this point. We (laughs) – it was the two of us because Philip Seymour Hoffman's in the living room being filmed. And uh, uh, so it's the two of us on the phone with the sound guy. And for some reason, and I don't know how this started, we kept singing Sade songs. I don't know that I could go any deeper than smooth operator. What? Sweetest taboo, Matt. Come on. <laughs> so we... <laughs> that's right. You sucked that down. So we would sing as much Sade as we could remember. And first it was just me and Mary Lynn. I don't remember why it started. And then eventually the sound guy started... <laughs> like the sound guy was like, hey, what about, uh, what about this one? And then he would start a song. And we had enough time to like work out the harmonies and stuff. This, do you think, theoretically, if he was into it, he was probably recording it? This might exist somewhere. Perhaps it does. Oh, Perhaps basement it does. tapes. Yeah. Please. <laughs> so that was day one. Day two... 
was Mary Lynn's coverage. So they're shooting Mary Lynn. I'm in one room. Phil is in another room. And um, at that point, I was double booked because I was – I was booked to do an episode of news radio. And so I am freaking out, like looking at my watch, like I'm supposed to be at this fucking sitcom. Like I, I can't, it's getting close now. And so I ended up getting to a network TV taping late. Um, I got there after they started shooting. My scene wasn't, you know, until later in the episode. And so it somehow it was fine. Like nobody got – they were just like, okay, you're here now. It's fine. Like nobody got mad – demonstrably mad at me. But when it was over, the uh, the show – the guy who was running the show at the time, uh, Al Higgins was a guy that I, I kind of knew a little bit. And uh, you know, so it was over and we're leaving. We're in the parking lot and he said, hey, great job today. Hey, uh, somebody told me like – you were late to, to the taping? And I was like, who would have said that? And I, like, practically ran away. You, not only you ran, you lied and ran. Oh, I lied and ran. That's yeah. like a hit and run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that got me my SAG card. That was how I got my SAG card. <laughs> to this day, I don't know if it was Magnolia or News Radio that got me into because SAG. Because they overlapped. They, had, yeah, they happened at exactly the same time. And knowing you and knowing your fear of, of like being in trouble, that must have been the most tense day when you were traveling from one set to the I, other. Right? I, why I don't have an ulcer is beyond me because it would have started that day. I was freaking out. And it's like I don't know what – somehow I'm powerless in this. I don't know what to do and I don't know who to talk to about this. But uh, that was the second day. The third day was my coverage, and um, no one is there. Mary Lynn's not there. She is on the phone from, like, her house. She's literally calling in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, – no, I'm sorry. Someone is just reading her lines, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is calling in from his apartment in New York. So so this is literally a day later, day three, so he's already – Gone no, it's not. It's not. I can't remember the timeline. It, w- it was not necessarily the next day. This okay, was this was shooting. third day for me. Got it. Okay. Yes, not for the production. Okay. Um, so I was. I felt a little bit ripped off. Like, hey, yeah, you, how come I had to be there for these people, and now when it's time for the camera, to, I had a sneaking suspicion that I you would not be seeing me in the film. Yeah, but presumably your delivery would, would need as much believability as. Philip Seymour Hoffman. So if you're gonna put it on the screen, sure. <laughs> but still, you. But if you kind of know at that point, uh, we may not use this. You know. Yeah. And, and and of course it's like, of course they didn't use it, and why would they? Like you don't want to see the guy the guy on the other end of the phone when like this scene is so intense, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing like the acting job of a lifetime. Who wants to cut away? Like, no, oh, I've got to. I got to know what that other guy looks like. I but gotta see him. He's. I mean, if he works for Seduce and Destroy, is he dressed in a uniform or a T-shirt of that company? <laughs> I was, like a leather vest, like Tom Cruise. Wore. I was wearing. I was. I had a wardrobe fitting and everything. And you know, you give your. What happens is the wardrobe department contacts you. They say, "What are your sizes?" You give them your sizes, and then you try in a bunch of stuff. Now. The wardrobe guy for Paul Thomas Anderson's films, this is known among a a, a few actors. Notoriously, when you show up for the fitting, after you've given your sizes, all the clothes will be a size too small. All of the clothes will be a size too small. Just to fuck with you? I don't know why. Did this happen on uh, There Will Be Blood? No, on There Will Be Blood, I think everything fit. I think everything fit. 
um, because it was like weird period stuff that. Or you know, he had stopped being a dick. May, I don't know. I don't know. But maybe he already got me once. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, he'll see it coming. I but because because uh, who there was somebody that was doing a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I don't know if it was The Master or something. And uh, I had heard this story through Flanagan, the owner of Largo, uh, who also briefly appears at the beginning of Magnolia. He's one of the three robbers uh, uh, in that opening uh, black and white sequence. Um, that uh, somebody told Philip Seymour Hoffman they were working on some movie with Paul Thomas Anderson's wardrobe guy, and he said, make sure you tell him two sizes up, because when you get there, it's going to be two sizes small, and he's going to make you feel bad about it. So it's just like this. It made me feel so much better hearing that story. It's like, oh, I thought it was just me. Like, why would he do that? It's the worst person on earth. I don't... (laughs) Because people are coming into that situation already feeling uncomfortable yeah, absolutely. and insecure. And to do that to them just seems cruel. Maybe he needs glasses. Maybe. Maybe he's looking at those tags and like, I think that's a 32. Oh, maybe he's missing 21 <laughs> grams of soul. <laughs> so, all right, you're on the day. You're, yeah. And how were you dressed? I was wearing some horrible jeans, <laughs> like, like almost like uh, that weird... Uh, God, what were they? I think at the time they were like, you know, those jeans that like had weird, uh, distressed patches on yeah. them. Like yeah. the the shins would just be like all worn to shit. Like yeah. how would that ever happen in life? To like, imply like you play soccer in your jeans. All the <laughs> yeah, time of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm in a jean soccer league <laughs> where everyone plays in their jeans. Um, and I was wearing this Sounds this tie dyed shirt and a hoodie over it. Okay. Yeah, that was my that was the character of and Chad. And what did you take from that? Like Chad was just doing this as a jobber, or was he? A, he was probably a believer in seduce and destroy, but low level and working his way up. Yeah, I, I got the impression that the idea of this company was that everyone believed in it, and it was almost cult like, and you know, uh, and it was based on a guy. I can't remember the guy's name, um, but I remember Paul showing us the tapes of this dude. Who was like before you know mystery and all those that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, before the game, this guy had a had this this sort of course of like here's how you can pick up chicks and here's what you do and it was a lot of the same principles of of being negative and you know all that stuff. But this guy was like the nerdiest, <laughs> fayest, Like this is like the like nothing like the Tom Cruise character at all. Like this guy looked like an accountant and. You would never guess that he had this weird little empire of like seduce and destroy, you know. So it's way, way different than you know what what Tom Cruise ended up being. I want to look, but it's all the same principles. It's all the same principles. Yeah. How much of it was exaggerated for the film? Because when you watch it now, when researching for this, yeah, it felt like this is so over the top and ridiculous. But in the '90s, it probably wasn't. All the ideas were exactly the same. Good lord. The only thing that's like Tom Cruise was was his that character was much more of a showman than the real dude. But other than that, it's all the same. It's all the same principles. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> were you also friends with Amy Mann at the time? And were you guys aware that you were both working we, on this film together? We became friends around that time because um, the reason I ended up in the movie was uh, 
Paul was going to Largo a lot because of his friendship with Michael Penn and Amy Mann. He was going to Largo and seeing shows. And around that time, um, that was like the height of the nightclub Largo, where there was a, a they started comedy there, and then all the comedians and musicians were appearing on each other's shows, and there was a, a big variety scene that was happening at that club. And so Paul would come and, and see the shows. And so he, like I'm sure he saw me uh, either on comedy night or, or open for... John Bryan and I would be uh, every Friday night at the John Bryan show. Um, uh, John Bryan is an amazing Los Angeles-based uh, musician and composer, and um, uh, you should absolutely check him out. He's he's got he's got a few albums out there, but he he's done uh, composing for a couple Paul Thomas Anderson films, and is just he's a, he's a real genius. And so he would do these shows every Friday where. Um, he was like he would do this looping stuff. He would he could play. He has a, a, a an encyclopedic knowledge of music, and he could play anything in any style. Um, in addition to playing his own music, but he would um, do all this uh, this this just amazing stuff. So I'd go there every Friday, and and so Paul got to know a lot of the. Uh, he became good friends with Flanagan, and then got to know a lot of the performers. And so I'm in Magnolia. Pat Oswalt's in Magnolia. Um, Flanagan's in there. Um, there's a there was a lot of uh, a lot of crossover in that movie. I remember this time as an outsider because I had gone to see a comedy night at Largo in the 90s that you hosted. Mm-hmm. We did not know each other. For, we wouldn't for years. Yeah. And Patton Oswalt was in it, and you hosted. And I remember you You kind of had like a cocktail with you. The Probably. Whole time. <laughs> that was a very important thing at the time. <laughs> and Patton Oswalt did this whole routine on The Family Feud and Richard Dawson. And so when we recorded with him for Super Ego, that's how I brought that up, and we had done that sketch, and it wouldn't be until years later. But that same... I think those same within the same month was when I saw Magnolia and saw Patton mm-hmm. Oswalt was in it and I saw your name in the credits and it was <laughs> yeah it was my voice is confluence. still in the movie my voice yes. is still in the movie and for a while <laughs> but well, you think, well I'm sorry no no I mean it's a good <laughs> substantial scene and they keep cutting back to this thing yeah and he's still talking to you yeah yeah uh, well Paul you were my first guest on this podcast ever that's true you never forget your first. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you're my only repeat guest. Oh, is that so? Yeah, yeah, for the main segment, yeah. I got one movie left. What is it? Oh, Jack Frost? That's right, Jack Frost. The movie where Michael Keaton dies and comes back to life as an anthropomorphic snowman. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, sure. Um, that's the end of the podcast proper, but we have a few minutes. Uh, if there are any Q&A uh, things that you guys would like to know about uh, something Paul can answer or about I Was There Too, we have a free microphone. Hi. Can Paul talk about doing Tango? Oh, that's, I was in another movie. I know. That's right. In fact, <laughs> if there's much to say. It was, it, I, I played in the, in the uh, Disney movie <laughs> Tangled. I play a little tiny... Uh, thug. He was called Short Thug, but really he was the Drunk Thug. Um, he was this little bald man with a long white beard uh, who is speaking constantly in slurred speech um, and hiccuping. So, you know, he's short. Um, <laughs> and a uh, guy, Nathan Greeno, who is the director of the movie, was a fan of mine from Largo and been to like so many of my shows and said, hey, would you ever want to be in this movie? I'm like, of course would I would. Ever? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so I was there for 
you know, I, I think I recorded my entire part in an hour. It was just me by myself with the with the directors, and um, you know, got to improvise a little bit, and and uh, uh, it was a it was it was wild. It was a really wild experience because the recording itself for animated stuff is not. It's not eventful, you know what I mean? You're because you have the script in front of you, and you're reading, and you're, you know, it's a very easy gig. And then once you see it all put together, it's it's extremely exciting. We went to the my wife and I went to the premiere, and and we're just enchanted by the whole film. Mine, I get so many points from my niece who loves this film, and the fact that I can say I know who the old little Cupid guy is, and she every time asks me about it. So that's very. That was the most wonderful premiere that I'd ever been to. Premier, movie premieres are not really fun. Like the very first one that you go to, it's very exciting and you can't believe everything. What was your after first that, one? Do you remember? Would it have been um, Magnolia? It might have been Magnolia, yeah. And that was, that was very exciting. Um, and the, because to see this movie and feel like, wow, I'm a part of this amazing thing and, and all that. But after a while, it's like, you know, maybe if you are a big star and you're the star of the movie – I was talking about this with Michael Ian Black. Like, you feel like you have a purpose. Like, yes, I'm here to help sell this movie, to get my picture taken. But when you're not a big deal in this movie, it's like if you do the red carpet, someone has to tell the photographers who you are. They could not could not be less interested in you. And you see, like, just... It's like you're a child, and they're trying to just appease you. Like, take one picture, and then the camera goes down. Like, oh, all right. Um, I re- it's do you humiliating. remember when you took me to the premiere of At World's End yeah. and they took pictures of you and then I was next and I swear they just started wiping their lenses <laughs> we got a couple of pictures though there's we pictures did. of us yeah. we have nothing to do with the movie but they're, no. we're there yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but that premiere was the, because it's a children's movie and it's Disney it was the nicest premiere where we did the red carpet and everything and that was and everyone was I don't know they were just nicer and then when we went to the party afterwards rather than make it the, the tendency is to make any Hollywood party the tendency is to make it like you're in some horrible cocaine club <laughs> where it's too dark the music's too loud I'm like what are we doing here and this because there were kids there the lighting was beautiful and the music was tasteful and at a, a perfectly acceptable volume. And it was, it was wonderful. That's Disney. It was wonderful, yeah. 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 And there was like all these weird little stations for the kids. Like, you can get your hair like Rapunzel's hair. And you can, like, that kind of thing. What, did they just shove you full of keratin so it grows? Or what? <laughs> they, they, like, they braided how she had it just braided in the movie. Creatine powder. <laughs> <laughs> All, all those kids walked out with extensions, with five-foot extensions. Speaking of Disney, I used to work at California Adventure, and there was this place called, like, uh, Libby Lou. Have you heard of that? And these kids would go to it and get made up like Britney Spears. So there would be tons, like, legions of kids walking around the park with hair extensions and head mics and glitter makeup. And what? just, like, over-sexualized have- little, like, have you ever seen the movie The Brood? It was like that meets an adult film. It was just horrible, horrible. But the mics weren't connected to anything. No, they were plastic, like toy face microphones. And so literally, like, not like a Britney Spears type of thing, like Britney Spears. Yes. Okay. Yeah, like they went in and go, give me the Britney Spears. Could the boys get made up like Kevin Federline? <laughs> little chin strap beards? Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Like just little spirit gum yarn beards. Yeah. <laughs> like this. Oh. We might have the perfect business model if we want to start that. Oh, yeah. Timely, timely. <laughs> uh, another question. Anybody? Oh, yes. Dana, right? Yeah, uh, how did you guys become friends? 
how did we m- meet and become friends? Through the magic of the internet. That's right. Um, I was on a, uh, a message board for a podcast, and there were... Um, I was looking through these threads, and there was one that was uh, podcast recommendations. And so uh, I, I'm a voracious podcast listener uh, as well as participant. And so I was uh, reading through this, and somebody mentioned this podcast called Super Ego. They said it was sketch comedy. And at the time, this would, would have been like 2006 or seven, and there, were, there was not a lot of sketch comedy, little to none uh, sketch comedy podcast. And uh, so I listened to it and loved it right away. And then um, I th- we just talked about this the other day. Yeah. It was that I started following you guys on Twitter. Yeah, and we all went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wrote to me, and then yeah, we started just, a conversation. Yeah, I said, you know, we're, to, we're joking about how back in those days you would do the cordiality of, thank you for the follow. <laughs> we are a big fan of yours. This is very exciting. And then uh, basically, please come record with us whenever you'd want. Yeah. And then uh, he did, and then it was just like a mainstay from there on out whenever yeah. we could record with him not just because to us it was Paul F. Tompkins but because he clicked so well with our sensibilities and it was so much fun it was wild how natural it felt because you know to, to go into an improv situation with complete strangers and then just to have it feel like we'd always done it together yeah. like we'd always been doing this together yeah. was was really exciting it, and it was some of the most fun we've ever had recording it really was for me too oh. <laughs> One or two more questions? Uh, just this side of the room. You guys got it going on. All right. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. We will come up. We'll, we'll, I just pointed at him, and then we will go to you next, and then you. And then this better be a good closer. Okay. Yes. That's true. Let, let me just recap in case we use this. Right. He's saying you played a cruise ship captain on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and they may or may not be planning a mutiny. How much research did you do in case they need you? Um, I did zero research. <laughs> um, I think I'd seen pictures of captains, so I knew where the hat went. Um, so if you're not ready to go home, I can almost guarantee you I won't get you home. <laughs> But I can't tell you where we will end up. <laughs> yes. Would we ever do an animated Super Ego series? We tried many times. We pitched it all around town. and um, uh, It was even in development at some point with yeah. Six Point Harness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, boy, it seems like we had a few rounds of that yeah. coming to fruition. But. And to us, it seemed very, it seemed like such a natural thing. Like, of course, this is the way to do it. That, you know, because the the, the show is so theater of the mind that you couldn't do it live, really. No. Um, it needed to be animated. But, um, yeah, nobody really went for it. Never happened. <sighs> Fun question. <laughs> Just kidding. Thanks. Thanks. No. Thanks. But there are um, there are many sketches that have been animated either by listeners or by. For, uh, we did a web series version of it 
through Nerdist for a while too. And all of them, for various reasons, have so much to offer in terms of the animation. They really augmented some the, really talented yeah. people that, yeah. that brought it to life in a, in, in in very diverse but equally wonderful ways. Yes, and, and you, I don't know how you look at that and you don't say, "Well, here's a fucking cartoon that would be easy to do." <laughs> Disney, it's half done already. For Christ's sake, you can Google it, and there's the God GI Joe, uh, Giger. Um, Family Feud, God's Crazy Monsters, mm-hmm. uh, Creationist Museum is on there. There's all sorts of stuff with many wonderful guests. All right, yes, sir. Oh, that's another one I was oh, in. Oh, you were in The Informant. That's yes, right. thank you. I remember. Oh, that Why, was I, I saw that on an think? airplane when we had just become friends. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like I was talking to you through the little screen? I, no, I knew it. <laughs> The informant and uh, Steven Soderbergh had tapped a ton of comics. It was all comedians in the supporting roles. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Now, was... do you want to get into it, or do you want to wait? Maybe we'll just away? we'll just do a whole special of the Paula Tompkins potpourri, and then we'll cap. It, it won't off. take long. It no, won't take long. I feel like Jack Frost. There must be something to say, right? Because is it fair to say Jack Frost? It was an outlier film, right? Like it's not. <laughs> It was ahead of its time. (laughs) People weren't ready. It's been on How Did This Get Made. Yes, absolutely. Also, my understanding is that Janet Varney is in the film Catwoman. And maybe we should just do a special where we kind of talk about some of your, uh, you guys have some, you know, fun experiences on films that haven't entered, well, let's say the Library of Congress. Or or you just have experiences on those films. (laughs) Yes. All right. That will do. Thank you once again, Paul F. Tompkins. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And um, thank you so much for coming to this. And again, thank you so much for having me on the Joko Cruise. I've had such a wonderful time. Jonathan and Paul and Storm and everybody else. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful last day on the cruise, everybody. Thank you. What is the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium? Nettled spaghettarium nocturnum. The night spaghetti. Looks like spaghetti. Yes, but specifically when you eat it at night. Why none other than the biggest, boldest Howl original show yet. I've seen a crab with seven legs. Starring Jermaine Clement in a truly original fantasy adventure. Oh, what's that awful smell, Solitaire? That's the sea air, sir. Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium today, only on Howl. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.